Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. Season 7 of Jury Duty focuses on two sexual assault trials, the trials of Harvey Weinstein and Danny Masterson, that are currently taking place at the same time on the same floor of the Clara Shortridge Fultz Criminal Courts Building in downtown Los Angeles. Two times per week, on Mondays and Thursdays, you will hear new episodes with reports from journalists who are in the courtrooms as these trials are happening. On today's episode, we hear assessments from our correspondents of the strategies and tactics behind witness questioning in each trial. That's all coming up right after the break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We begin today's installment with Brittany Bookbinder and her look at witness questioning in the Los Angeles trial of Danny Masterson. We begin with a correction and an update on the jury composition. We previously reported that the jury was composed of seven women and five men. In fact, the jury was composed of seven men and five women. Last week, both sides agreed to excuse one juror, juror number 10, a heavyset African-American man who was alleged by prosecutors to have been sleeping during testimony. Juror number 10 was replaced at random by the alternate in seat 15, a white woman who appears to be in her 30s. The jury is now evenly split, six women and six men. Previously in our trial coverage, we have recounted the witness testimonies surrounding the allegations of Jane Doe 1, Masterson's friend whose allegations begin with her attempt to retrieve a set of keys from his house, and Jane Doe 3, Masterson's former girlfriend. Today we look at the testimonies of Jane Doe 2, who entered the courtroom last Wednesday wearing a cream-colored button-down blouse, a black jacket, and black slacks. Between October and December of 2003, Masterson invited Jane Doe 2 over to his house. As soon as she arrived, he handed her a glass of wine. Within the next 30 minutes, she felt weak and blurry. When he began to penetrate her, she yelled for him to stop and repeatedly said, quote, no sex, no intercourse, end quote. He proceeded to allegedly rape her. Deputy DA Reinhold Mueller conducted direct examination of Jane Doe II. Mueller began by asking how Jane Doe II became acquainted with Masterson. She testified that they had both been involved in the Church of Scientology and had attended some of the same events and parties, although they had never spoken beyond pleasantries. Jane Doe too recounted that she first became involved with Scientology when she was about 16. She had been experiencing anxiety and asked her mother if she could be put on psychiatric medication to deal with it. Her mother, who was no longer a Scientologist, but who had taken Scientology courses in London when she was younger and still held some of the beliefs from that religion, recommended instead that her daughter work with a Scientology field auditor. Jane Doe too went to a field auditor's house for about a year. Then, when she was 17 or 18, she began going to the Scientology Celebrity Center. At that time, Jane Doe too was pursuing a career as an actor. She played a lead role on a sitcom on ABC. By 2003, that series had been canceled, but Jane Doe 2 offered that she was still going on auditions and was in consideration for roles on other network series. 
At the time of the incident with Masterson, she was living with a close friend of hers, Alaria Urbanati, while she looked for a new apartment. One night between October and December of 2003, Alaria invited Jane Doe Two to go to a bar called The Well with herself, Luke Watson, and Danny Masterson. Jane Doe Two testified that while they were at the bar, Masterson stared at her, quote, in a laser-focused way, end quote. She recalled that she was drinking a glass of water, and when she looked up, she noticed Masterson's stare and the way that Alaria and Luke Watson watched him watching her. She said, quote, It was a very intent, somewhat predatory stare, end quote. She testified that she had noticed him staring at her this way once before on another occasion, but had brushed it off. When they left the bar, she stated that Masterson said to her, quote, Give me your number, end quote. Within the next few days, she testified that Masterson texted her, quote, Come over right now, you're getting in my jacuzzi, bring your bathing suit, bring your bikini, end quote. She testified that she found it obnoxious and aggressive, but wondered if that was his way of wording a message to someone he liked. Her friend Alaria, who she stated was also close to Masterson, told her that he really liked her, and that she never saw him look at a girl the way he looked at Jane Doe too at the well. When Jane Doe Two responded to his text message, she suggested instead that he take her out on a date. She testified that she told him directly, quote, I am not getting in your pool. I am not getting in your jacuzzi. I am not taking off my clothes. I am not putting on a bathing suit. We can talk and we can have a glass of wine and then I'm going home, end quote. With those conditions in place, she agreed to go to his house. Before she went to his house, she had, as was her custom, a small amount of alcohol, red wine or vodka, to calm her nerves. She testified that she did that sometimes to take the edge off of social interactions, quote, I was never drunk. I wasn't allowed to take any sort of psychiatric drugs, end quote. The implication was that the Church of Scientology prevented her from treating her anxiety with medication. Jane Doe too stated that as soon as she arrived at Masterson's house, he handed her a glass of red wine. She testified that he said, quote, drink it now, end quote. She explained that she was nervous to drink it in front of him and didn't remember whether she eventually drank the whole glass. She testified that she and Masterson went outside near the jacuzzi. Masterson said, quote, take your clothes off right now, end quote. Although she was nervous, she tried to keep the moment light. She testified that once again, he said, quote, take off your clothes. If you don't take them off, I'm going to take them off, end quote. She responded with nervous laughter, quote, no, 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 end quote. She testified that, Quote, he was so commanding, and I didn't want to incite or arouse violence, so I was trying to not make it a big deal. End quote. She testified that around this time, when they were outside by the jacuzzi, she started to feel numb and heavy in her body, and things started to get fuzzy. She said that, at this point, she has a vivid memory of certain moments where other moments are gone, as if, quote, you painted all black over the other parts, and some parts are really vivid. End quote. She testified that they started making out, quote, really heavy. End quote. She testified that she was trying to keep things from escalating. She didn't want to arouse violence and thought she could manage the situation by setting boundaries. She said, quote, I did not want to have sex, intercourse. I didn't want any of this, what was happening. I didn't want to be in the jacuzzi. I didn't want him to be touching my vagina. I didn't want to be having sex of any kind. I had said that to him, end quote. She testified that from there, he ordered her to get into the shower. She testified that he kissed her. Then she testified he stuck his finger into her vagina and she said, quote, no, 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 can't do that, end quote. She said, quote, at that point, I was afraid to really assert myself. He was really intense, end quote. Then she stated, quote, all of a sudden, he went inside me with his penis really fast and I freaked out, end quote. 
She testified that she said, quote, no, we cannot have intercourse. We cannot have sex. What are you doing? You just went inside me. Why did you do that? I told you no, end quote. She testified that from there, they moved into Masterson's bedroom. She said, quote, at that point, I was just obeying him. He had just raped me in the shower, and I didn't know what to do other than obey him now, end quote. She testified that they were making out on his bed, and she once again tried to manage the situation by setting a boundary. Quote, we cannot have sex. Will you promise me? End quote. She testified that he said, quote, yeah, end quote. Soon after, however, she testified that Masterson said, quote, that's it, end quote. He proceeded to flip her over on the bed and began raping her from behind. Shocked, she stated, quote, I told you not to. What are you doing? End quote. She testified that she realized he wasn't wearing a condom and told him to put one on, but she testified, quote, that was so not the point. The condom was not the fucking point, end quote. She testified that he was pounding her so hard that she started to vomit in her mouth. She swallowed it to avoid throwing up on his sheets. She testified that she felt overwhelmed, quote, I didn't want it to be rape because so many reasons. We were in the same church and I didn't want to think of someone in church that I was friendly with as a rapist. We were very profoundly scrutinized for negative thoughts of others. It meant that you had sins against them. I also could not process emotionally at the time a rape. I didn't have the mental landscape available to me at that time, at that age. Also, in the church, he was considered more important than me at the time. There were so many reasons. I could not think of it as a rape. That would have made my life horrible." End quote. She testified that after the incident, they talked. At one point, he commented on her sexual inexperience and then shared that he had recently had a threesome, but, quote, I just did a 2D sex check, so I'm good, I'm clean, end quote. Mueller asked her what a 2D sex check was, and she explained, quote, In the church, they have this. It's called a security check. It functions like a confessional, but they do it with an e-meter, which is essentially a lie detector. And in this confessional, you're meant to say things that you have done, even thoughts you had that would be considered not optimal for you, for others, for the world. And by getting out the charge, you're meant to feel more clear, and you're more fit to be accepted in the world and by the church. And on the 2D, it means second dynamic, they have, I think, eight dynamics, but the second one is about love, romance, and family. So if you have a 2D sex check, it's about romance, sex, or family, end quote. She testified that at about 5 a.m. she went home. In the days after the alleged assault, she testified that she felt that if Masterson were to call her, it would confirm, as she was trying to convince herself, that the incident wasn't rape. When he didn't call, she reached out to him. Their phone conversation was brief. He was curt and indicated that he had not called because he was busy. Mueller asked if she had feelings for him, and she testified that at that time in her life, she didn't understand the difference between attention and romantic interest. When Mueller asked if she viewed the incident differently today, she testified, quote, Of course. Absolutely to me it was rape. He was like a predator. As an adult woman, you have plenty of time to start seeing these distinctions of someone having affinity for you and someone targeting you like you're a piece of meat, end quote. She testified that she interacted with Masterson a few more times after that phone conversation. The last interaction, years later in 2007 or 2008, she was attending a live performance with friends and Masterson was there. She testified that, quote, he was just staring at me like a hole in my head and he was pissed, end quote. She added, quote, he looked like he wanted to kill me, end quote. Jane Doe too testified that she disclosed the 2003 incident to several people shortly after it happened. First, in the days or weeks following the incident, she told her mother. She testified that she relayed, quote, how he was very rough with me, how I vomited in my mouth a couple times, and just that it didn't go well, end quote. Mueller asked if she told her mother that she had been raped. She responded, quote, I could not say that to her. No, I did not say that. 
end quote. Next, in the weeks afterward, she spoke to her best friend, Jordan Ladd, who wasn't a Scientologist. She also told another close friend, Rachel Smith. Mueller asked if she had reported the incident to the Church of Scientology. She explained that she hadn't done so because she had previously been raped by a different member of Scientology. When she went to church officials at that time, the chaplain made it clear to her that she must not report to law enforcement or she would be excommunicated and declared a suppressive person. Jane Doe too testified that she spoke with LAPD detective Esther Reyes in 2016 or 2017. She didn't remember whether she told Detective Reyes that she had disclosed the incident to Rachel Smith and Jordan Ladd. Mueller then moved on to an area of testimony that defense attorney Philip Cohen brought up in his opening statement, why Jane Doe too had spoken with the other named victims in this case. Jane Doe too acknowledged that she was told not to have contact with other victims. She testified that at a certain point, she stopped following that instruction because, quote, Detective Reyes was doing things that were very shady and suspicious to me. I felt we were in danger, end quote. She added, she, meaning Detective Reyes, was not interviewing the witnesses. She was not professional, end quote. Finally, Mueller asked Jane Doe too if she had experienced stalking and harassment. She testified that she had. It began the week she reported her alleged assault to the LAPD and was ongoing. Defense attorney Philip Cohen then conducted cross-examination. As with the previous victims, he began by putting up a slide with a list of names and dates, indicating some of the statements the victim had given about this incident. The slide indicated that in late 2003, Jane Doe too spoke with her mother, Joanne Berger, that in January of 2017, and then again that March, she spoke with Detective Reyes, and in May of 2017, she gave an interview to Deputy DA Mueller. Cohen then asked her to verify the timing of these statements. When he asked her about the statements to Detective Reyes, he asked about the detective's credentials, presumably to refute Jane Doe's testimony that Reyes was doing a poor job. Jane Doe too acknowledged that Reyes had 20 years of experience. Cohen asked if Reyes was, quote, the same detective that you believed was hurting our case. Jane Doe too corrected him, the case, marking the first of several times that Jane Doe too disputed the importance of a particular word. Cohen cut her off, asking whether, quote, our case referred to the other two named victims. She responded that she was referring to, quote, anyone raped by Danny, end quote. Cohen next questioned Jane Doe too about a statement she made to Detective Reyes about the incident, specifically whether she told Detective Reyes that she never thought Masterson was going to hurt her. She testified that she did make that statement, but may not have articulated herself well because she wasn't sure of what she was being asked. Ultimately, Cohen was able to elicit from her that she told Reyes that she never thought Masterson was going to hurt her or hit her. Cohen then asked about Detective Reyes's instruction that Jane Doe too should not be in contact with the other witnesses in this case. Jane Doe too testified that she didn't specifically remember Reyes's warning that the case would be, quote, shot. She testified that she ultimately did not follow that instruction. Next, Cohen asked whether Jane Doe too is seeking money in the civil suit against Masterson and the Church of Scientology. She testified, quote, I don't know, I don't know yet, end quote. Cohen then asked Jane Doe too about her level of anxiety and whether it was more significant in 2000 compared to today. Jane Doe too testified that it's different. Back then, she testified, quote, I had generalized anxiety disorder and a panic disorder and panic attacks regularly, end quote. Cohen asked if it's gotten better in recent years. She replied, quote, I don't think so. It started to get better and then the harassment started and it came back, end quote. Cohen then asked about Jane Doe 2's initial impression of Masterson when they went out for drinks at the well. It would seem that Cohen's narrative for Jane Doe 2 is that she liked Masterson and was disappointed that he didn't want to date her after the incident. She testified that she did find Masterson's confidence and the way he carried himself to be attractive, but that he wasn't her type. 
Perhaps sensing her hesitancy to agree with his questions, Cohen, it seemed, tried reverse psychology asking, quote, when someone is not your type, you're not really wanting to date them or be romantic with them, end quote. Jane Doe too said, quote, it depends, there are a lot of factors, end quote. Cohen then asked about the alleged text messages between Jane Doe II and Masterson from late 2003. She testified that she does not have those text messages. Cohen then asked about the alcohol Jane Doe II consumed on the night of the incident. He asked if she had told Detective Reyes that she probably had one or two drinks before arriving at Masterson's house. Jane Doe II testified that she, quote, meant it as a throwaway. I was trying to say that I didn't have a lot, end quote. Cohen then returned to the incident. He asked if she went upstairs to Masterson's bedroom of her own volition. She testified, quote, he ordered me to, end quote. Cohen asked, verbally? She said, quote, he said go upstairs, now, commanding, end quote. Cohen asked, whatever he said, you then voluntarily went upstairs? Jane Doe too said, quote, I obeyed him, end quote. Cohen's line of questioning appeared to be aimed at suggesting that the incident was consensual. He went on to ask about her feelings and expectations. He asked if she hoped that Masterson had romantic feelings for her. She testified that yes, if he had, she wouldn't have to reconcile with what had happened. He asked if she thought they would start dating after the incident. She testified yes. Finally, Cohen asked about the disclosures she made. Cohen asked if she ever asked Jordan Ladd or Rachel Smith to speak anonymously with the press on her behalf. She vehemently said no. On redirect, Deputy DA Mueller returned to the point about Jane Doe II speaking with the other victims. He asked about the circumstances around her telling Detective Reyes that she had a right to speak with whomever she wanted. Jane Doe II explained that she heard from witnesses who were interested in speaking to law enforcement on her behalf that they had reached out to the LAPD but had not heard back. Jane Doe II asked Detective Reyes why she hadn't spoken to those witnesses. Returning to her statement, Mueller asked if it was in that context that Detective Reyes told her not to speak to witnesses. Jane Doe II said yes. Mueller next asked about Jane Doe II's initial interview with Detective Reyes, presumably for the purpose of explaining why certain words or details may have changed. He asked whether it was the first time she had been asked to recall specific details of the incident. She said yes. Lastly, he asked about her conversations with the other victims in this case, and whether they had discussed the concerns they shared about how the investigation was going. Absolutely, she said. He asked if they discussed the stalking and harassment they were experiencing. Quote, absolutely, we were all really scared, she said. He asked if they found some support from each other by speaking about those things. She responded, quote, 1,000%, end quote. With that, after one full day of testimony, Jane Doe too was dismissed. In our next episode, I'll recap the events from the rest of last week, including two of the people who Jane Doe 2 disclosed to and two detectives involved in the investigation. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And now with her review of recent witness testimony in the L.A. trial of Harvey Weinstein, here is Molly Miller. In our previous episodes, we covered the riveting testimonies of three of Weinstein's accusers. Jane Doe 1 was the first to take the stand. 
the Italian talk show host and model is a complainant in this case, who testified that Weinstein raped her while she was in Los Angeles for the LA Italia Film Festival. We then recounted the testimony of two prior bad acts witnesses, who also alleged that Weinstein assaulted them. Ashley M., who met Weinstein while she was on the set of Dirty Dancing Havana Nights, and Kelly S., who encountered Weinstein during the Toronto International Film Festival. Today, we're going to cover the testimonies of forensic psychiatrist Dr. Barbara Ziv, Jane Doe 1's daughter, Maria C., and Jane Doe 3. On Tuesday, November 1st, the morning session began with a discussion between the attorneys and Judge Lynch outside the presence of the jury regarding Jane Doe 5. The woman is a complainant in the indictment, but she was missing from the prosecution's opening statements. Since openings, all attorneys have been tight-lipped about Jane Doe 5, making her the subject of much speculation outside the courtroom. Four of the 11 counts of sexual assault facing Weinstein stem from her allegations, which include charges of forcible rape. Defense counsel Mark Worksman complained to Judge Lynch about the prosecution's lack of clarity involving Jane Doe 5. Quote, Jane Doe 5 is a critical witness with a huge amount of evidence and transactions, end quote. He asserted that the defense was hobbled and prejudiced by not knowing if she would testify, and that the people have an ethical duty to dismiss the associated charges if they know they cannot support them. DDA Paul Thompson responded that testimony from Jane Doe 5 is still a possibility. Judge Lynch ultimately ruled that she would not force the prosecution to dismiss the counts associated with Jane Doe 5 at that time. After the jury filed into the courtroom, the prosecution called expert witness Dr. Barbara Ziv to the stand. Ziv is a prominent forensic psychiatrist who testified for the prosecution in Bill Cosby's trial and also testified for the prosecution in Harvey Weinstein's trial in New York. The woman strode to the stand wearing a sharp black blazer and delivered articulate testimony regarding rape myths. Dr. Ziv told the jury that contrary to popular conception, many victims of sexual assault do not resist their assailants, many do not report their assault promptly, and that some victims continue to have a sexual relationship with their abuser, especially if that individual has power over their career or livelihood. Quote, a lot of times people feel like they are just damaged goods and nobody else is going to want them. End quote. Additionally, Dr. Ziv explained that most victims of sexual assault personally know their assailants, and that it's impossible to know if a woman has been sexually assaulted solely based on her demeanor. During Ziv's testimony, the defense memory expert Deborah Davis watched from the gallery wearing a green knit sweater and jade jewelry with a loose braid down her back. Throughout Ziv's examination, Davis shook her head. When Dr. Ziv told the jury that there had been tens of thousands of papers published on rape myths, Davis scoffed and whispered to the defense team, that's bullshit. On cross-examination, defense counsel Alan Jackson presented Dr. Ziv with a hypothetical. A woman is tired. She's had a long day taking care of the kids. Her husband comes home and asks for oral sex. And even though the woman is exhausted, she does it because it's his birthday and she wants to please him. Jackson asked Dr. Ziv if, in her opinion, the sex act in that hypothetical was consensual. Ziv responded that it was, because the woman wanted to please her husband and he wasn't making her do it. 
In his following questions, Jackson tried to draw a parallel between the woman in the hypothetical and some of Weinstein's accusers who the defense claims had unsavory sex with the defendant that was still consensual. Dr. Ziv held firm against this line of inquiry, forcing the prosecutor to move on. In the afternoon, Deputy DA Paul Thompson called Maria C. to the stand as a fresh complaint witness. Maria is the 21-year-old daughter of Jane Doe One, the Italian model who alleges Weinstein raped her during the LA Italia Film Festival in 2013. Maria C., like her mother, currently works as a model. Maria C. testified about an award event that she attended with her mother in 2017, at which she saw Harvey Weinstein. Quote, All of a sudden during the conversation, my mom became very nervous, and I noticed that she started looking only in one direction of the room. After a few moments, she kept saying, let's go upstairs, to where the dinner is. Let's go. Let's go. Maria C. continued, quote, And the direction she was staring was right outside the theater. There was this man sitting and staring right at my mom and I without taking his gaze off, end quote. Maria C. told the court that she later learned that the man staring at her mother was Harvey Weinstein. Deputy DA Thompson proceeded to question Maria about how she learned that Weinstein sexually assaulted her mother. The young woman explained that the topic came up when she told her mother that she was being sexually harassed by another student at school. Quote, I was scared. I was angry. I wanted help. Maria C. testified that her mother, Jane Doe One, urged her to report the incident to the police, but that she was hesitant to involve law enforcement. Quote, I said that I just wanted to leave it in the past, that I just wanted to get it over with, that I just wanted the student to stop stalking me. I told her she didn't understand, end quote. In response, Jane Doe One told her daughter that she did understand because she herself had been raped. Maria testified that she later discovered Weinstein was her mother's assailant. After that revelation, the two women made a deal. Maria agreed to report her sexual assault to the police if her mother also reported her rape. Maria tearfully told the jury, quote, I had the courage to speak out only because my mom promised me. It was the best deal that I made in my life, end quote. On Wednesday, November 2nd, court resumed with another tense encounter between the defense and prosecution outside the eyes of the jury. Defense attorney Mark Worksman informed Judge Lynch that there was a severe problem with one of the prosecution's fresh complaint witnesses. The witness, Christina Zwiers, was supposed to testify in support of Kelly S., the woman who claimed Weinstein sexually assaulted her during the Toronto Film Festival. But Zwiers emailed the prosecution and said she wanted nothing to do with the trial. The prosecution promptly delivered the email to the defense for full transparency. Worksman went on to describe the contents of the email as a, quote, scathing and blistering indictment of the character of Kelly S., end quote. And he said that it involved allegations of theft, embezzlement, elder abuse, and fraud perpetrated by Kelly S. and her husband. As a result of the development, Worksman implored the judge to force Kelly S. to return to the stand in order to be questioned about the allegations, or for the court to strike her testimony entirely from the record. Judge Lynch ultimately decided that Kelly S. would not be called back to testify and that her testimony would remain on the record. The judge also denied an additional request from Worksman that the prosecution turn over more communication with their other fresh complaint witnesses. Worksman bristled at the ruling, stating, quote, I always get nervous when the fox gets to decide what it gets to turn over to the chickens, end quote. 
Judge Lynch responded, quote, Brady obligations are not foxes and chickens, Mr. Worksman, end quote. Later in the day, the prosecution called Jane Doe III to the stand. She met Harvey Weinstein in 2010 when she was working as a masseuse to celebrities. The woman testified that she gave Weinstein a massage in his room at the Montage Hotel and that the encounter started out as a pleasant one. Quote, he was very nice, talking to me very friendly, very curious about me, complimenting my massage technique, end quote. Jane Doe III told the jury that Weinstein suggested that she write a book about her massage technique and informed her that he had a publishing company. According to Jane Doe III, she massaged Weinstein for about 40 minutes, and then he abruptly said, I'm done, which was unusual because the appointment was for a full hour. She went to the bathroom so that he could get dressed, but then the bathroom door opened and Harvey was standing there naked and masturbating. Jane Doe III testified that she told Weinstein to go back to the other room, but he continued to touch himself. Quote, he said, look at me, tell me how big my cock is, look at me, look at me, fucking look at me, end quote. The woman's eyes welled up on the stand and she struggled to hold back tears. Quote, I was terrified, I thought I was about to get raped, end quote. She alleged that Weinstein pushed her up against the wall and put his hand under her bra, feeling her chest. She said she tried to move away, but it was impossible because Weinstein was almost twice her size. According to Jane Doe III, the producer ejaculated and then tried to smooth things over. Quote, he kept saying, we're close friends now. You have full access to me. I want to get you a book deal to write about massage, end quote. Jane Doe III testified that after the assault, she packed up her massage table. Weinstein asked for her address to send her some books and she gave it to him. When Deputy DA Marlene Martinez asked why she provided her address, Jane Doe III responded, quote, I don't have an answer for that. I was scared, end quote. The DDA next inquired about why Jane Doe III didn't tell her then-fiancé about the incident. The woman explained, quote, If I told my fiancé that I was sexually assaulted by Harvey Weinstein, he would have made me go to the cops. If I did that, I would have been alone on trial against him. I would have been the massage therapist that couldn't be alone with a high-profile client because I would accuse them of sexual assault." End quote. Following the alleged assault, Jane Doe III maintained contact with Harvey Weinstein. She was in touch with his publishing company and wrote a treatment for a book about different kinds of massage entitled Naked Massage. When Weinstein asked for another appointment, Jane Doe III agreed. She testified that she booked the massage in order to get him to admit that he assaulted her and to secretly record their conversation on her phone. That recording has since been lost. According to Jane Doe 3, Weinstein flashed her during the second massage, but he didn't masturbate in front of her. She testified that Weinstein later requested a third massage, and she agreed, but only after he showed her a picture of his injured foot and said that she was the only one who could make him feel better. When that massage was done, Jane Doe 3 said that Weinstein asked her, quote, Do you want to continue to be close friends with me, have full access to me, or do you just want to be invited to a movie premiere? End quote. The woman told the jury that she understood that he was asking to masturbate in front of her again. She testified that at that point she said no, but she also tried to take control of the situation. Quote, I said you cannot touch me, you are not allowed to put a finger on me. And he said okay. End quote. Weinstein then allegedly pulled down his pants and masturbated while shouting at Jane Doe 3 to look at his genitals. When the incident was over, Jane Doe 3 said that she refused to take any money for the massage because she felt disgusted about what had happened. 
DDA Martinez then moved on to an additional encounter that Jane Doe 3 had with Weinstein a year or two later. By that time, Jane Doe 3 was an assistant to a publisher named Sean Lourdes, who specialized in coffee table books. Lourdes was working on a book about Hollywood, and when he learned that Jane Doe 3 knew Harvey Weinstein, he asked to meet with him. Jane Doe 3 testified that she agreed to set up the meeting because she thought that Weinstein wouldn't try anything sexual while Sean was there. Lourdes, Weinstein, and Jane Doe 3 proceeded to meet at the Peninsula Hotel, where the encounter was professional, until Weinstein asked if he could see Jane Doe 3 alone. She recalled that Weinstein then walked her up to his hotel room, took off his pants, and masturbated in front of her as he tried to lift up her shirt and grab her breasts. DDA Martinez asked Jane Doe 3 why she didn't leave. She responded that she was embarrassed and she didn't want to have to explain herself to her boss. Although Jane Doe 3 did not report the assaults immediately to the police, she testified that she did tell another one of her celebrity clients, Mel Gibson, about her traumatic encounters with Weinstein. Gibson may testify as a fresh complaint witness later in the trial. We will cover the cross-examination of Jane Doe 3 in our next episode. Okay, joining me now for a discussion of their trial reports are jury duty correspondents Molly Miller and Brittany Bookbinder. Molly, Brittany, welcome back. Thanks, Carrie. Nice to be back. Thanks, Carrie. Great to be here. With all of the Jane Doe's and Joe Doe's, these cases are tough to follow. And so I really appreciated your recaps in this episode. First, I'd like to follow up on those recaps. So, Brittany, we've had Jane Doe 1, the Masterson friend who forgot her keys, and Jane Doe 3, Masterson's former girlfriend, and now Jane Doe 2, the woman who described Masterson's verbal and physical treatment of her as predatory. How would you compare and distinguish the testimony of Jane Doe 2 from the other two accusers? Right. Well, Jane Doe 2 was striking in several ways. And I'll start actually before even getting into her testimony, you know, just from the vantage point in the courtroom. She entered the courtroom with the largest entourage of anyone we've seen so far. And this might have been a mix of attorneys and family or friends, but there were about four or five other people who walked her in and out. The other thing about Jane Doe 2 that was distinct was her demeanor. She spoke about her issues with anxiety, and you could definitely see that she was nervous. But in spite of that, she really seemed to push through those nerves and she carried herself with confidence. And I, I think more than the other Jane Doe's, she was very clear on her story. And even more than the other Jane Doe's, when it came to cross-examination, she was ready for a fight. So aside from the way that she carried herself, the allegations of Jane Doe 2 were also unique from the other victims. She had not been previously acquainted with Masterson outside of one night at a bar where he asked her for her phone number. And then she she received an invitation over text, which was a very clear invitation. It sounded more like a hookup and she wanted to go on a date. And so she set some pretty clear boundaries in advance over text before she agreed to go. Once she was at the house, the date went off the rails. And at that point, some of the specifics are similar to what happened with Jane Doe 1 in the sense that Masterson gave her a drink. She felt dizzy and experienced memory loss in a way that was beyond what a glass of wine would do to a person. And then the rape occurred from there. But not all of the details of the allegation are the same. And we can get into next episode how the prosecution is distinguishing their allegations because there were some interesting developments with that toward the end of this week. 
Got it. Molly, in Weinstein so far, we've had Jane Doe, one, an Italian model and talk show host, and two witnesses, Ashley M. and Kelly S., who testified about alleged prior bad acts by Harvey. Before we get into the drama of the sidebar about Kelly S., let's talk about the impact of the testimony of Jane Doe, three, the masseuse, and how that compared to those of these other witnesses accusing Weinstein of sexual assault. So let's focus on the Jane Doe's right now, because I think there's a pretty stark contrast between the testimony of Jane Doe 1 and Jane Doe 3. And it really illustrates where the prosecution might be struggling. So in my opinion, and I think the opinion of all of the reporters in the courtroom, at least all that I've spoken to, Jane Doe 1's testimony has been the most effective by far because it's the simplest. She saw Weinstein at the L.A. Italia Film Festival, and she alleges that he laid showed up at her hotel, barged into her room, and raped her. And yes, they later saw each other at events, but there was really no ongoing relationship between the two. And when she was on the stand, she was emotional in a way that made it exceedingly hard to believe that she made up her allegations. Now, in contrast, we have Jane Doe 3, and her relationship with Harvey Weinstein is much more complicated because it was an ongoing relationship. After she had what worksmen called the massage from hell, in which Weinstein allegedly sexually assaulted her, she continued to give him massages. She continued to speak with him and his team about a book deal. She accepted invitations to movie premieres from Weinstein. She set up a meeting between Weinstein and her boss and tried to connect one of her friends who worked as a feng shui expert with Harvey because she thought that her friend might get a book deal from him. So all of this continued contact and engagement with this man makes it harder to believe that the incidents that occurred between them were all non-consensual. Now, that doesn't mean they were consensual, but I think that it's going to be a lot harder for the jury to tease apart her feelings and her motives during the alleged encounters. And the defense has been doing a really good job at making her motives seem complicated. It's not clean, but they're definitely using the complicated relationship that she had with Harvey Weinstein to instill doubt about whether or not these encounters were consensual. Okay, now let's follow up on the Kelly S. situation and the aborted testimony of Christina Zwiers. Could you quickly remind us what Kelly S.'s testimony was and then share more of what you may know about the Christina Zwiers situation? Sure. So Kelly S. is the woman who alleges that Weinstein raped her at the Four Seasons Hotel in Toronto during the Toronto International Film Festival in 1991. And she testified that she had another encounter with Weinstein in 2008, that's 17 years later, at the same hotel during the same film festival. And in that instance, she says that he trapped her in a bathroom and masturbated in front of her. So we know very little about Christina Zwiers as a person, other than the fact that the prosecutor was planning on calling her as a fresh complaint witness for Kelly S. So what we do know is that Zwerz said in her email to the DDAs that she wanted nothing to do with Kelly S. or testifying in the trial. She alleges that Kelly S. engaged in elder abuse and that she and her husband looted, the word literally was looted, $10,000 from her. So... (laughs) 
This is going on during the trial. It is strange to me that the prosecution wasn't able to get ahead of this, that they didn't have more of a conversation with Christina Zwiers before Kelly S. took the stand. And clearly, whatever's going on between Christina Zwiers and Kelly S., it seems like a messy personal situation. And I obviously am certain we do not have the full story. But it's messy. It's messy in court. We do also know that the prosecution had another fresh complaint witness lined up for Kelly S. And the person, as Thompson put it, flaked. But it's unclear why she flaked as well. So lots of drama going on with Kelly S., but none of it in front of the jury. Got it. Brittany, it was interesting to hear the prosecution eliciting testimony from Jaden Doe number two, again, the woman who regarded Masterson as predatory, that explained the conversations among Masterson's three alleged victims as stemming from their shared concerns about how the LAPD detective was pursuing the case, as well as their collective fear of continued harassment by the Church of Scientology. How well do you think the prosecution has done in prepping the jury and the witnesses themselves for the weakness in these alleged victims' testimonies and in their actions subsequent to the alleged actions by Masterson. Right. It's not immediately clear that they prepped the witnesses at all for the inconsistencies in their testimony. And I've spoken with several other journalists about this, and I get the sense that perhaps the prosecution isn't able to prep the witnesses all of that much. But of all of the witnesses so far, Jane Doe 1 has been the most inconsistent, both in terms of her testimony on the different days that she was on the stand, and when you look at her testimony compared to some of the earlier police reports. I think by far the biggest challenge for the prosecution when it comes to her testimony is the issue of the gun, whether or not there was a gun actually brandished during the incident. As far as Jane Doe 2 and Jane Doe 3 are concerned, they were clearer on their individual stories, and there were some small inconsistencies between their testimony and prior statements. But I think as far as the jury is concerned, the prosecution maybe didn't prepare them in advance when it came to their opening statement. But as the case has gone on, I think the prosecution has made it clear in the questioning of victims how it's been 20 years and the core elements of their allegations have remained consistent, even though smaller details have changed. Also, this week, they brought in an expert witness, a clinical and forensic psychologist who specialized in the behavior of trauma survivors. And we can get into the particulars of that in a future episode. But I think the prosecution is trying to show that even though the victims didn't label all of the incidents as sexual assault right away, that doesn't change the fact that their memories of what actually happened have remained fairly consistent over time. Where I do think the prosecution has been more successful is indicating how the harassment and stalking and threats that they've experienced since reporting to law enforcement have impacted their actions. However, because of the nature of that testimony and what the judge has ruled about evidence relating to Scientology, that questioning has been somewhat limited. But I still think that the effect has been pretty clear. Molly, a similar question for you. Jane Doe 3, the masseuse, seemed to have a lot of trouble with the cross-examination about her actions after Weinstein's first set of alleged lewd acts. The prior acts witnesses also 
appeared to have some vulnerability in explaining their actions after the alleged assaults. Obviously, the prosecution has put on Barbara Ziv to offer general context for the state of mind of Weinstein's accusers. But do you think the prosecution is doing enough to get out in front of the specific attacks on the testimony of these women marshaled by the defense? So first of all, I think that Barbara Ziv did an excellent job testifying. I think that she was articulate. And I think that her testimony regarding rape myths was highly effective in contextualizing the testimony of Weinstein's accusers, specifically when we're talking about people like Jane Doe 3, who had this ongoing relationship with Weinstein. Barbara Ziv told the jury that, you know, although we expect women who have been sexually assaulted to not have continued contact with their abusers, that that does happen, especially in situations where their abusers have power. So I think that that was effective. But in general, if we're talking about if I think that the prosecution is doing enough to guard against the specific attacks from the defense, honestly, I don't think so. I think the prosecution has been a little bit disorganized when it comes to the last few witnesses they put on the stand. I don't think they're doing quite enough to take the wind out of the defense's sails. Specifically, I would expect them to be showing more of the potentially damaging exhibits first prior to the defense so that their witnesses can explain their rationale, specifically why they continued contact with Harvey before the defense can use those exhibits to attack their story. But a few emails have fallen through in addition to some statements the witnesses made to the police that had some inconsistencies. And I think that all of that may make it seem to the jury that the prosecution is being caught on its heels and maybe that some of these witnesses have something to hide. At the very least, I think that that the defense is doing a good job of instilling some reasonable doubt with some of these witnesses. Well, Brittany, Molly, as always, thanks for these comprehensive and profoundly insightful assessments of these trials. We're looking forward to having you back on the next episode to recap the last few days of both of these trials. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Carrie. Thanks, Carrie. And with that, we conclude this episode of Jury Duty, the trials of Weinstein and Masterson. Join us on our next installment as we hear more from Molly and Brittany about the progress of the prosecution's case in both of these sexual assault trials. Also, if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about these trials on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. It was reported and written by Molly Miller and Brittany Bookbinder. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trials of Weinstein and Masterson.